Well, good morning again, and uh, as you have noticed, uh, this morning we're going to look at a, a short four-week, uh, this will be the first of a, a short four-week series on the doctrine of hell. Uh, it's not something that's uh, to take lightly, um, but what, one of the things that we uh, that shapes the way we do ministry here at Crosswinds um, is our commitment uh, to follow the example of the Apostle Paul in Acts 20. Uh, Paul in Acts 20 is, is looking back at uh, his ministry in Ephesus, and this is what he says to the church leaders in Ephesus. He says this, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And we here at Crosswinds, we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed, that all of Scripture is profitable for our growth as believers, and we don't want to shrink away from challenging topics, difficult topics, uh, when we come across them in our regular preaching uh, through books of the Bible. But every now and then, our lead pastor, Kurt, and I, we, we get together and, and we reflect on our, our church's diet, so to speak, of, um, of God's Word, and, and reflect on whether we are actually accurately uh, declaring the whole counsel of God. And oftentimes this leads to us uh, addressing a couple different topics um, during the summer, um, important topics that uh, are, are in our culture. And so uh, over the past several years, we've looked at apologetics, uh, we've looked at human sexuality, we've looked at the afterlife, we've looked at politics and other things as well. And, and as I alluded to last week, when we get to August, we're actually going to be spending four weeks looking at prayer. We're going to spend time looking at uh, how God has called us to pray, and what does it mean for us to actually pray. Uh, this morning is another short four-week series uh, looking at the topic of hell, the topic of judgment. And uh, if this com- conversation, this topic makes you uncomfortable, um, that's actually probably a good thing. Uh, I'll, I'll be the first to say it makes me uncomfortable. But as I have prepared uh, for this series, I think there are at least three reasons why this or this, this topic, this series is so, so important for our church. So uh, as, we, as we jump into this series, I want to just run through three reasons why a discussion on hell is so important. The first one is this. A discussion on hell is extremely relevant for us. It's extremely relevant for us. It's relevant because we live in a world where the going mortality rate is 100%. Everyone who has ever lived, unless Jesus returns first, everyone who will ever live, who is living now, will die. Death is inescapable. Each year, over 55 million people die around the globe. That's over 150,000 people a day, 6,300 an hour. That's 105 people every minute. Nearly two every second take their final breath. And we have no idea when our last breath will be. We have no idea when we will be called to to make an account for the life that we have lived. And even if we make a, a very, very, very generous estimate and just say, okay, uh, of all of those people who die, the 55 million people each year that die, let's say that half of them have trusted in Jesus. That still means that over 75,000 people each day, if hell is real, will spend eternity apart from Christ. This topic is relevant because James tells us, we do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We don't know what tomorrow brings, and that has eternal ramifications for each of us. This is relevant because we all will die unless Christ returns first. But it's also extremely relevant because the traditional doctrine of hell is increasingly under fire, and and there's no pun intended there. In his first letter, the apostle Peter writes this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. As uncomfortable as this topic may be, it's not off limits. In fact, it is actually the other side of the coin of this phrase, this statement that Peter makes here, the hope that is in you. And it's, it's something that we, we need to be able to give a clear and thoughtful explanation to those who ask us. Nahum chapter 1 in the Old Testament, I, I just read this this morning, it actually surprisingly talks about how this judgment is a part of the good news. It says this, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And then it says this, For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. We should be able to to think thoughtfully about this because it is so important to our understanding of the gospel. Second, uh, Second reason for this series, a discussion on hell is extremely biblical. It's extremely biblical. It doesn't originate with the vivid imaginations of fire and brimstone preachers from the 1800s. It actually originates in the teaching of Jesus himself. If you were to catalog all of the verses where Jesus teaches, where he says something, there are, there are 1,870 different verses where Jesus says, uh, where Jesus is, is speaking. And of those, one, over one in every ten of those verses has Jesus addressing judgment or hell. More than half of Jesus' parables deal with this topic. Nearly all of our understanding, all of the Bible, nearly all of the Bible's teaching on hell actually comes from the lips of Jesus himself. Now, Jesus isn't the only one, isn't just the one who gives us our primary understanding of hell. He's also the one who gives us the only right way to talk about it when we discuss it. There's this uh, passage in, in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus is he's headed for Jerusalem, and, and he knows the judgment that is coming for Jerusalem because it is going to reject him. But instead of responding with this, uh, to this coming judgment, instead of responding with indifference or instead of rejoicing that they are going to get what they deserve, it says this, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Oh, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The Bible not only reveals to us what hell is like, it also reveals to us the right heart to hold when we are addressing this subject. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous preacher from the 1900s. A friend of his uh, told him, One Monday, hey, I I preached on hell yesterday, and and he simply said, did you preach it with tears? And that 
is the type of, of heart, the type of gravity that we want to have when we look at this series. You're not going to hear any jokes. This topic is just too serious for that. We want to be people who approach this with compassion, with, with tears in our eyes, because that's the only right way to approach this topic. The, there, are, there are lots of opinions on what hell is like. Many of you may remember uh, the, the Tom and Jerry episode where Tom has one hour to befriend Jerry before he is sent to hell. And he frantically decides or tries to, to make up for all the wrong that he's done in, in his life to this little mouse, and, and he ends up being condemned because his, his pen runs out of ink. He ends up in hell where he's tortured by the devil himself. Now, it would be fascinating for us to, to look at all of the different ways that pop culture describes hell and, and portrays it, including that one. Uh, and the, re- the reason why that's so fascinating is because many of us oftentimes have an idea of hell that is more formed by old cartoons or by what our culture has to say about the topic than by what the Bible has to say. Our culture portrays hell as a place where Satan reigns, and yet the Bible tells us God is the one who reigns. Satan is in chains. And if we want to be faithful to our commitment to Scripture, we have to know what Scripture truly says, including on uncomfortable topics such as this one. And one final reason. A discussion on hell is actually central to God's character. It's central to God's character. Let me explain that. Any discussion that that we have on hell ultimately is making a statement about who God is and what God is like. So questions concerning the legitimacy of hell are actually in reality, they're questions concerning God's character. What is God really like? Could God really condemn people to hell? Or have we just missed the boat? Or if hell is real, is God actually too powerless to stop it, or his hands tied. And how we answer these different questions on hell actually ultimately makes a very important statement about what we believe God himself is like. So let's explore this even further. Today, uh, no surprise that our cultural climate sees the traditional doctrine of hell as something that's just absolutely untenable. It's, It's morally offensive to many people. How could God really condemn people to eternity apart from him? And maybe you felt this, uh, this uncomfortableness with this doctrine as well. It just doesn't make any sense to us. So you can be standing in line at Dairy Queen on a Friday night or standing in line in Walmart, and, and you begin to think and look around at everyone surrounding you, and it, how, can it, how can it be possible that these people who are around me, how could it be possible that they've really done something that's, that's so wrong that they deserve such a fate. It doesn't line up with what we believe about God. We sing songs that declare that God is good. We radically confess that that God is love. So how on earth can we reconcile this this biblical notion uh, of an eternal conscious punishment in hell with our understanding that God is love? You see, underneath all of this is this assumption that rules our modern-day thinking, and it's this. Hell is diametrically opposed to a loving God. That's what our culture believes. The concern of of many isn't primarily with hell. It's actually with what it says about God. Ironically, the, the ancients had a similar problem, except it was the exact opposite. 
If our culture overemphasizes the biblical truth that God is love, ancient men and women actually emphasize the equally biblical truth of God's justice. The question for people in the first century wasn't, how could a loving God send people to hell? The, the question was, how could a just God possibly pardon the sins of the wicked? And so, for people in the, in the first century, the, there is this rub, there's this concern with what the Bible says about God's mercy. Job's friends, they just assume that his suffering is punishment due to some sort of unconfessed and hidden sin. Jonah, in the Old Testament, he complains to God because God decides to relent of his judgment on the Assyrians. Habakkuk says much of the same thing. He says uh, he, he's concerned that God is using wicked people like the Babylonians. And are you really going to just ignore their sins, God? Many of the New Testament letters wrestle with this question. How could God possibly ignore the sins of the wicked? Shouldn't there be some sort of payment that people have to pay for what they've done wrong? The question of hell is one that is ultimately concerned with what God is like. It's, it's concerned with what the Bible says about him. Is God just? Is God fair? Is he loving? Is he all-powerful? It's these questions and more that are at the heart of any discussion on hell. And so this morning what I want us to do, before we actually even jump into this topic of hell proper, I just want to look at the, the context or the, the discussion on judgment itself. New Testament letters are filled with discussion on God's judgment. We're going to look at one of those this morning uh, and, and ask ourselves, what does the topic of judgment reveal about what God is like? So if you have a Bible, open up to, to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Uh, in this passage, we're going to see four sobering truths about judgment, and specifically about the judgment that is to come. And as we look at this passage, I just want to consider one overarching question, and that's the, the title of this sermon this morning. Who can stand in the coming judgment? Who can stand in the coming judgment? In the most basic sense, judgment is simply just God evaluating the rightness and the wrongness of the actions of a person. He does it for humans. He does it for angels as well. The measuring stick for God's judgment is not arbitrary. It's not relative. It's not conditional. But instead, it's based on God's own righteousness. It's based on God's own holy character. The Bible assures us that God is the great judge of the entire earth. And God is fully committed to doing what is right. And throughout the Bible, there's this rock-solid confidence in that truth. I can trust God to do what is right. That's actually exactly what Abraham says in Genesis chapter 18. In the context of judgment, it says this, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or right. God brings judgment upon the wicked, sometimes in this life and also in the age to come. And as our passage from Romans makes clear, God has appointed a day where he is going to bring judgment upon all people for all of the wicked things that they have done. If you've ever been wronged, you've ever been hurt by another person, if it ever appears that someone has gotten away with something, 
God's judgment on display in the New Testament reminds us that no one ever truly gets away with things. So what does Romans chapter 2 tell us about God's judgment? Let's consider these four truths. The first one is this, God's judgments are always true. God's judgments are always true. Verses 1 through 3. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? God's judgments are always based on the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is perhaps clearer in the NIV translation of verse 2, where it's a little more literal. It says this, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on the truth. When judgment comes, we can be confident that it will be done according to the truth. If you have been slandered, if you have been lied against, if you've been misrepresented, if you have been the victim of character assassination, rest assured, even though others may be fooled, God is not fooled. When judgment comes, it will be done in perfect truth. God sees through our smoke screens. He sees through our weak justifications. He understands the depths and the motives of our hearts. And on that day, everything will be made abundantly clear. Nothing will be debatable. God's judgment here is always in truth. Notice how it says in this verse, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on the truth. What is the such things that Paul has in mind here? The answer is found in the previous chapter. Romans Eight, or Romans 1, 18 through 32, describes that the wrath of God is coming upon humanity because of the things that they have done. And in this context, he lists three exchanges that humanity has made. If you look at the, the first verse of Romans chapter 2, it tells us that all of us are guilty of these exchanges, three great exchanges, starting Romans 1, verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Humanity, all of humanity, has exchanged the worship of God for the worship of idols. All of us were created to worship God, but instead, we decided, we chose to worship created things rather than the Creator. Romans 2 reminds us that we're not fooling God. If we worship money, we can convince others that we're just being wise or, or good stewards, but God's not fooled. God knows the truth. If we worship ourselves, then we may convince others that we're just concerned with good good, proper self-care, but God's not fooled. If we worship our children, we may convince others that we're just being a family man, but God is not fooled. He sees and knows that we exchange the worship of God for the worship of smaller, lesser things, for idols. Second exchange, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The first exchange that humanity has made in the rebellion against God is this worship, uh, instead of worshiping God, they now worship idols, mentioned here in this, this verse again. But also, we have gone a step further, and we have uh, exchanged the, the truths that we have about who God is, and we've exchanged them for lies about God. This has been summed up, actually rather succinctly, for centuries in a, in a relatively um, quippy statement. God created man in his image, and man, being a gentleman, has returned the favor ever since. We see this all the time today. When someone encounters a particularly challenging or uncomfortable piece of God's character, they will say something like, I can't believe in a God who blank, or that's not the God that I worship. We oftentimes treat God's attributes as a grocery store. We pick and choose which ones that we prefer in order to make him into our image, in order to make him more palpable. In order, and in doing so, we create this God who is not at all God, but is instead actually a lie. Romans 2 reminds us that we are not fooling God. We may deceive ourselves into believing the, the lies that we believe about God, but, but we're not deceiving him. Even more sobering, we're reminded that all of us are guilty of this in, in some capacity. Each of us, oftentimes in ways that we may not even realize, have accepted lies about God that make him more palpable to us, more, easier for us to st- more easy for us to stomach. But God's judgments are always true. He will not be fooled. The third exchange is found in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions... For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Oftentimes, when we read this passage, we can get caught up in what it says about sexuality, and, and it is very clear here, but, but I think that if we focus so much on that, we miss the broader points of what Paul is trying to tell us. All of us, in, in one degree, have exchanged these honorable passions, this honorable way of living for dishonorable passions or a wicked way of living. All of us have exchanged holy living for wicked living. We know the good that we are supposed to do, but we silence that inner voice. We know what we're supposed to do, but instead we just say, and eh, maybe tomorrow. Or, you know what, God will understand. Or, or you know what, God's going to forgive me anyway. Or, well, at least I'm not like them. Or, or say something like, well, everyone has got issues. God gives us countless opportunities to act like him each and every day, and we pass up on most of them. Jerry Bridges once wrote this, Holiness of character is developed one choice at a time as we choose to act in righteousness each and every situation and circumstance we encounter during the day. Romans 2 reminds us that God will not be fooled. Our excuses on that day will be found hollow and feeble as they truly are in God's sight. Our laziness is going to be all the more damnable on that day. Our hearts will be exposed to the truth that they cannot bear to stand. When we stand before what we were created to be like, we will see just how far we have fallen short. Romans 2 reminds us that these exchanges, the worship of God, 
for idols, this exchange of truth about God for lies, holy living for wicked living. It's not just describing people that are out there. Romans 2 reminds us that it is a mirror, that these are things that are true of each of us, that each of us is an idolater, that each of us is a liar, that each of us is a wicked one. God's judgments are always true, and oftentimes that's terrifying news. Our final three truths, much quicker, they just build on and reinforce this first one. The second truth is found in verses four and five. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If we let the, the first truth of the horror that awaits us uh, truly sink in, we're probably left clinging to this hope of mercy. But here we see a second truth in judgment, and it's this. Mercy alone will not stay God's hand. Mercy alone will not stay God's hand. 2003, there's a, a poll here in the United States that actually revealed a relatively troubling uh, statistic, although not all that unsurprising. 64% people, uh, 64 of the population believes that they will go to heaven when they die, and less than 1% believes that they will go to hell. Now, most people are not going to say that I am going to hell if they truly believe in a hell. But this stands in, in sharp contrast to Jesus' words when he says this in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We live in a culture that believes that heaven is our inherent right as humans. R.C. Sproul actually reveals this dominant thinking of our culture today when he says this, A prevailing notion is that all we have to do to enter the kingdom of God is to die. God is viewed as being so loving that he doesn't really care too much if we don't keep his law. The law is there to guide us, but if we stumble and fall, our celestial grandfather will just wink and say, well, boys will be boys. Our culture is filled with those who presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Perhaps that's true for some of us here this morning, that we live in this culture that doesn't believe in justification by faith as much as just justification by death. What matters is not following Jesus. What truly matters is that we're just graded on a curve. And, and you know what? At least I'm not as bad as those people over there. But heaven is not the birthright of humanity. The Bible is clear. God's mercy alone will not stay his hand. Third truth, verses 6 through, seven, or six through 11. God's judgments are always right. They're always right. Or maybe another way of saying that is, God's judgments are always fair. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. See, the Bible makes it 
clear that just as God knows the truth about everything, he's also going to be completely and utterly fair. He's going to be completely and utterly impartial in that day of judgment. He's not going to be vindictive. He's not going to have a vendetta. He doesn't have personal pet peeves that are going to lead him to this irrational response. He does not play favorites. He doesn't let some people off easy because they come from the right family or they have enough money or they, have the, or they come from the right area or they have the right skin color. Those who cheat on their taxes will be judged in a different way than those who are mass murderers. God is fair. God is just. He knows the truth. He is the ultimate source of right and wrong. He is the defender of the innocent and of the oppressed. And if you have ever been wronged, if you have ever been someone who is heartbroken by the, the ills of our society, you can rest utterly confident that God is fair, that his judgments are always right, that he will not extend his arm beyond the perfectly just measure of justice. At the same time, this also provides assurance for the oppressed. It's also sobering for every single one of us who has failed to keep God's law in its entirety. Anyone who has made those three exchanges in Romans chapter 1, the worship of God for the worship of idols, the truth about God for the, truth, for the lies about God, holy living for wicked living, all of those people will face judgment. God will not and God cannot pass over those who are wicked. God's judgments are always right and always fair. This text reveals one final truth. It's this, God's judgments lead to condemnation. They lead to condemnation, verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. No one is a doer of the law. Not Jew, not Gentile. All are without excuse. No matter your past, no matter your background, no matter how much we choose to defend ourselves, all of us stands condemned by our conscience, and the day of judgment is coming where all of this will be laid bare, and the results are terrifying. So the question remains, who can stand in the coming judgment? Who can stand in the coming judgment? And as we begin this short series on hell, it's vitally important for us to answer this question. If God's judgments are right, if they are true, if they are fair, if heaven is not the birthright of humanity, if I am guilty of these three great exchanges, idolatry, lies, and wickedness, then I cannot stand in the coming judgment. The horrors of hell are not just for those that are out there. They were my birthright. They are the judgment I deserve for choosing to worship money, self, pleasure over God, for knowingly making up lies about God to make him easier to swallow, more like me, for ignoring this call to holiness and instead choosing wickedness in my life. 
Ephesians uses language that describes me and all of us, a son of disobedience. To use the language of Acts, I was a son of the devil. The language of Romans, a slave to sin. Condemnation, the wages that I deserve. Heaven, this distant and unattainable dream. Heaven was not my birthright. Hell was my birthright. But then we get to Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, God's judgments are always true, but they don't have to be laid on your back. God's judgments are always right, but you don't have to carry that weight. God's judgments always lead to condemnation, but it doesn't have to be your condemnation. Mercy alone will not stay God's hand, but the cross will. Who can stand in the coming judgment? It's not the one who looks to their own righteousness. It's the one who receives the free gift of righteousness through faith. The one who knows that they are unable to stand on their own, but instead runs to the cross. The one who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It is at the cross that we see how God can be a loving God and a just God at the same time, that as this passage says, that he might be the just and the justifier. This cross reconciles creatures with their creator. This cross takes our birthright, hell, and gives us the Son's birthright, heaven. It is because of the Son of perfect obedience that the sons of disobedience are instead called sons and daughters of God. And so as we close, just simply ask, am I able to stand in the coming judgment? Now make no mistake, judgment is coming someday. And will I be able to stand in that day? Am I resting in my own righteousness or in the righteousness that comes through For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the gift of righteousness, what we most desperately needed you provided for us. And Lord, as we look at this passage, or this uh, topic, one that can be uncomfortable, challenging, unsettling, 
God, I ask that you would help us to look at it in, in a way that leads us to adoration for what you have done. That shows us the incredible glory of the cross. That you have given us a way to spend eternity with you. Help us, Lord, to turn our hearts and our lives and our affections to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.